0: So straight away, we see the problem that Jesus is tackling here, the reason for the parable or the story that he's about to tell us. Remember, just given the warning, that not everyone who claims to have faith will persevere, will keep going until the end. And then he's confronted with a whole bunch of people whose whole confidence is based on their own righteousness, which triggers this parable that we will get to in a few moments time, where Jesus makes it crystal clear that at the end of the day, anyone trusting in their own righteousness isn't going to make it. Now, judging by a few of the glazed expressions, uh, I'm thinking perhaps some of you are tempted to switch off here because maybe you can't quite see the relevance of this for you. What Jesus is talking about here in this passage is a huge problem today. And not just for people kind of out there somewhere, I'd hazard a guess that this is a major issue for plenty of us in this room right now. You see, this word righteousness that crops up in this passage might sound a bit religious, a bit old-fashioned, a bit archaic, but basically it has to do with being approved or accepted. Now isn't that something that all of us can relate to? Wherever you look, it's there. It spans every culture and every generation. There's this deep-rooted hunger for approval a hunger for acceptance a hunger for glory a hunger for honor a hunger for self esteem we we each have our own different version of it but when we strip it right back it's actually the same we're desperately in need of a verdict we need someone from outside of us to come in and say you're approved you're good you're worthwhile you have value, you're accepted. It's like someone from outside of us has to assure us that we're all right and yet no matter how much of it we get from the people around us, it never seems to be enough, does it? We're still left aching, we're still left hungry for a bit more acceptance, a bit more approval, more assurance, more honour. It's a massive problem So, where does it stem from? Where does it come from? What's its origin? Well, if it's universal, if it can be found in every single culture, if it can be found down through every single century, I suggest it has to start at the very beginning. And it does because in the opening chapters of the very first book in the Bible, in the opening chapters of Genesis, we're told that in the very beginning, when we as humanity were absolutely certain of God's approval, Adam and Eve, the first humans, absolutely certain of God's approval, they lived naked and unashamed. What does that mean? It meant that as humanity we didn't need to spin, we didn't need to try and control or manipulate what people thought of us. We didn't need to hide or cover up or shield who we really are. When we were absolutely certain of God's approval, we weren't needing anyone else's. We lived free. But when we lost our certainty of God's approval, when we decided to be our own masters, as a result we started experiencing this alienation from God. That's when we began to experience this hunger for glory, for approval, for self-esteem, for honour, for acceptance, this constant hunger for assurance that never seems to be satisfied. That is the problem of righteousness. Righteousness means to be approved, to be accepted, to pass scrutiny and I think it's a problem we all have. It is a huge problem and whether you realise it or not, every single person in this room is trying to deal with this problem one way or another and so faced with this problem, Jesus goes on to tell a story. He says let me tell you one very common way people try to deal with this that doesn't work and then let me show you the way that it always works. These two approaches to solving the problem of righteousness, they're represented by two very different characters, two very different individuals and we're introduced to them in verse 10. Jesus says two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee the other, a tax collector. And just so you know, a Pharisee was one of the ruling religious party members. He would have been very well educated, and his particular area of expertise was the law. So this was a very religious man, a leader in the Jewish community, very well respected, looked up to by everyone. By contrast, tax collectors, and we've kind of uh, kind of skewed this a bit because in Sunday school we sing songs about Zacchaeus the tax collector and uh, it's kind of romanticized a bit, but in reality they were wicked, wicked, wicked people. Uh, they purchased the right from Rome to raise taxes for Rome to support this evil suppressing army that was responsible for the murder and rape of hundreds of thousands of innocent men and women. These tax collectors, they betrayed their own countrymen. They betrayed their own neighbours. Quite understandably, they were despised by everyone. Now, I'll say this right out of the gate. I think the Pharisee, as we read this story, gets a bit of a rough deal here. I mean, if you've got any kind of background in the church, you're already going, oh, those Pharisees, those are the bad guys. So we read this prayer unfairly. We hear it in a way that the listeners wouldn't have heard it. We have to keep in mind, we have to understand uh, that this Pharisee is not a hypocrite. This is a good man. Uh, he He would have been highly respected by everyone and I'm telling you on the surface at least his prayer is pretty impressive. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. So whatever else you think about him, this clearly is a guy who takes his holiness incredibly seriously. He's ferocious in his passion and his zeal to obey God's law. It is, on one level, an impressive prayer. And then we get to eavesdrop on the tax collector. Remember that this guy who would have been despised by everyone, his prayer is altogether shorter. Verse 13, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. You're thinking, couldn't you have come up with something slightly more impressive here? I mean, there's nothing religious about this prayer, uh, nothing moral about it, nothing like that at all mentioned in this prayer. He simply screams out in a flood of tears, kind of beating himself in some kind of primitive, slightly awkward, embarrassing way. He's saying, be merciful to me. Now the next verse, I reckon, is as terrifying a verse as you'll find in the whole Bible. If Jesus would have just put a full stop instead of a comma in the middle of this sentence. It would be a really warm and uplifting verse. Let's look at what he says, verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home justified. Justify is a word that means right standing. The tax collector went home justified with right standing before God. Now, if that's where the verse ended, there was a full stop at that point. We could have invited Aidy and Alice to come back up and we could worship some more and we could leave here going, yay, the tax collector can be saved. But there's not a full stop. There's a comma. And that comma, if we get it, is going to cause quite a problem for us. Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home justified with right standing before God rather than the other one, rather than the Pharisee. For all those who exhort themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Which means this despised, despicable tax collector has right standing before God, and this honoured, respected Pharisee, who's zealous to obey God, does not. I think this has got serious implications for pretty much all of us. Here's why. We've already seen that both of these characters are chasing something that we all want. However we choose to define righteousness, there. this is something we all desperately, desperately need. In fact, whether we realise it or not, I, I suggest this is our greatest need. I've also seen that Jesus is warning us that tragically a lot of people who assume they have right standing with God won't have sufficient faith to endure to the end. So we've got to unpack this. It's of vital importance that we try and get to the bottom of what Jesus is trying to teach us here, because if we don't get the message, we won't find what we're looking for, this Acceptance, this assurance that we desperately want in this life, and we'll miss out in the life to come. We won't persevere until the very end. So basically, Jesus presents us with two different approaches to gaining righteousness, with gaining this acceptance, approval, honour, glory, right standing with God. One approach, represented by the Pharisee, is what I'm going to call the outside-in approach. And the other approach represented by this tax collector is what I'm going to call the inside-out approach. So there's the outside-in solution to righteousness that doesn't work. There's the inside-out effort as a solution to righteousness that does. Let's begin with the outside-in approach. I just want to point out a few of the traits of this outside-in approach that we see here with the Pharisee. First of all, notice how incredibly self-centered this man is. I mean, whenever you start a prayer like this, I thank you, Lord, that what you'd normally expect is a bit of a list of some of the things that God has done. I thank you, Lord, that you're merciful, that you're gracious, that you're so powerful, that you're so wise, whatever. This guy says, I thank you, God, and that's it. That's the last reference to God you're going to find here. From there on in, it's all about himself. I mean, imagine kind of Alice starting a song later, thank you, God, that I'm so wonderful, that I'm so beautiful. That I mean, You'd be sitting there thinking, what's going on here? It's like underneath the veneer of God-centeredness is utter self-centeredness. Now, under the veneer of all the religious activities, adoration of the self, adoration of the ego. Ultimately, it's not about God, it's about Him. Second, notice the externalism of this man. He doesn't say, thank you Lord, that I'm growing to be more patient, I'm getting to be a kinder person, I'm becoming more self-controlled, I'm uh, getting to be a gentler man, I'm able to love people I used to not be able to love, I'm able to keep my joy and my peace and my security even when circumstances go wrong for me. He's not talking about those things. He's absolutely focused on external stuff. I don't rob. I don't commit adultery. I don't cheat. I give 10% of my money away to the church and to the poor. I fast twice a week. Now, don't hear me wrong. That is all good stuff. But it's like his understanding of sin and virtue, what pleases God, is completely oriented to external behavior, the keeping and breaking of rules. It's not looking. Inside, it's not looking at his character. It's looking outside at all of this external stuff. And the third thing we see is how this man compares himself to others. And this is the absolute killer. Verse 9 says he's looking down on everybody. Verses 11 and 12, he says, I'm not like these other people. Which is another way of saying, I'm better than these other people. It's like, I don't rob, they rob, that makes me better. I don't commit adultery, they commit adultery, that makes me better. I fast twice a week, they don't, that makes me better. I'm going to be really direct with you. If you are not utterly sure of who you are, if you don't live with a constant sense of being accepted, being approved of by God, if you don't feel valued and loved, you are going to do this too. In fact, I think at times we all do, we're so hungry for approval, we are so hungry for glory, we are so desperate for reassurance that we're okay, that we constantly compare ourselves to others in the hope it'll make us feel better about ourselves. I think we do it a lot of the time but it is a dangerous 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 game to play because if we think we are better it fuels pride and if we think others are better it leads to all kinds of insecurity we feel threatened we feel like we're a failure we feel disqualified it's a horrible place to be so we start by saying look In reality I I don't like myself. I I need a sense of assurance that I'm doing okay so I'm going to live on the outside first in the hope that eventually I feel better about myself on the inside. I'm going to try and be very good. I'm going to be very moral. I'm trying to impress the people uh, around me. I'm going to be better than other people. This is how the outside thing works but it doesn't work. Because if it really worked, if you're really sure, if you really had that approval deep down on the inside through your working on the outside, you wouldn't be so insecure. You wouldn't be so unhappy. You you wouldn't be so upset when criticism came. You wouldn't have to be constantly telling everybody how great your life is. Listen, the... Outside in approach, I do good on the outside so I feel approved on the inside, it doesn't work. Worse than that, it brings a horrible spiritual blindness that can lead to absolute spiritual destruction unless you listen to and heed the warnings of the message of this parable. Jesus is warning us that all the things the Pharisee was depending on for salvation were worthless. So what is the solution? How do you solve the problem of righteousness? How do you handle your need for approval? You have a problem. I know I have a problem. How are we going to deal with this? But Jesus says there is only one way and it's the way that the tax collector goes. It's not the outside-in way, it's the inside-out way. Here's the inside-out approach. Here's how you can finally solve this problem of righteousness. First of all, there has to be a whole new way to understand sin. More accurate translation of what the tax collector prays here is, God be merciful to me, the sinner. That doesn't quite read so well, so you can understand how the translators said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, it's the sinner. This almost certainly means he's not comparing himself to anyone else. See, if you think of sin as just external stuff, and you compare all your external stuff to others, there's always going to be at least one other person who's done more sins than you. So if you're thinking of sin sort of externally and comparatively to others, you're only ever a sinner. You're never the sinner. But this guy's thinking of it in absolute terms. I doubt he's actually saying he's the very worst sinner ever, but what he's saying is, look, all I know is I'm lost. So where everybody else is, is irrelevant. It it doesn't matter, because I know I'm lost. He's thinking of sin the way you and I ought to think of sin? Really, if you want to fix the problem of righteousness, don't start by looking at all the external stuff you've done wrong. Don't, Don't look at all the individual actions first. I'm not saying robbery's suddenly okay. I'm not saying it's okay to commit adultery. I'm not saying that, don't hear me wrong. But you can't start there. You need to look beneath that. You need to look at what's at the heart of it. And here's what you have to do. At some point in your life, you need to say to God, Lord, I recognise there have been periods in my life where I've lived pretty badly. I know I've done things I shouldn't have done. There have also been periods in my life where I think I've been pretty good. I've stayed out of trouble, I, I've done the right thing, I've made the right choice but I'm growing to see that the reason I did the good things was pretty much the same reason I did the bad things. I've been wanting to feel better about myself but I've always wanted to be my own saviour. I've always wanted to put you in my debt and not want to live in your debt. I've always wanted to look down on other people. I've always been doing this outside in thing, always sometimes religiously sometimes not at all religiously, but either way it hasn't worked. Uh, I'm still hungry for approval, Uh, I'm still needy of assurance and so Lord I repent of the sin underneath, not only my sins but even my good deeds, my desire to find approval and acceptance and honour through my own efforts rather than in you. Lord I repent of putting all of my confidence in myself I repent of my pride. I repent of the motivation that's been driving me my whole life and I throw myself on you. And then secondly, we find there's a whole new way of finding approval. If we pray that prayer, it ends like this, God have mercy on me the sinner. This guy is about as broken as you can get. Here's one of the things that I've learned from being a pastor for many, many years now, there are different stages of brokenness. I think the middle stage is where you're beginning slowly but surely to realize that your sin is kind of blowing up your life. It's wrecking your relationships. It's wrecking up your soul, destroying you both on the inside and on the outside. And usually people in that stage just start getting Angry, angry at other people or angry at God. And so rather than accepting responsibility themselves, they'll try and find someone else to blame. So they're like, oh, my wife did this, or it's all my husband's fault, or my work situation is causing this problem, or if God hadn't given me these desires, I'd have never. It's like there's this middle ground where they're starting to feel that sin is blowing them up, but they. Love to find other reasons and other people to blame. Well, this guy, he's already moved beyond all of that. Have mercy on me, is all he says. He isn't saying, God, just let me off. God, if you could just lower your standards a bit. God, just kind of turn a blind eye, overlook my sins. Ultimately, that doesn't help with the problem of righteousness, What he's saying is, Lord, I need atonement for my sin. In other words, I need you to pay the price. I need you to carry the punishment, the penalty for my sin. I need you to become a substitute for me. It's the exact same word that's used in Hebrews 2, verse 17, where we're told that Jesus became fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make, here's the word, atonement for the sins of the people. So here's how Christians deal with the problem of approval. You have to know, first of all, Jesus loved you so much that he made atonement. He paid the price. He carried the punishment. He became a substitute for you. Jesus Christ became the sinner. He became the ultimate sinner. He died on the cross in our place for us. And then secondly, he made such atonement for you that now he can love you completely Well, once he died for you and paid the penalty for your sin, in spite of all the things you've ever done wrong and ever will do wrong, now you're accepted in him. You are completely, utterly, totally approved in him. So you don't have to wait until the end of your life to find out. You don't have to wait until the end of your life and say, well, did I live a good enough life? No, Jesus has done it for you. If you put your faith in him, it's all done, it's all finished, it's all complete. He's the thing that the tax collector was looking for, and that changes everything. It's inside out. It's the complete opposite of religion. If I do good on the outside, eventually I'll feel approved on the inside. No, the good news of the gospel is that you can be utterly sure completely convinced of God's approval, utterly sure of his love for you, utterly sure he knows everything about you, but he still loves you the same. Now, here's the thing. If you start inside with the knowledge of that acceptance, the knowledge of that approval, then on the outside, you will inevitably start to live differently but it'll be different than the way the moral person lives who's working outside in. Let me finish with an example, then we'll wrap this up. Recently, I was talking to a guy who'd been raised in an incredibly legalistic church. As he grew up, one of the things that he was told over and over and over again was you have to witness for Jesus. You must tell your friends about Jesus. You have to bring them to church. You have to get them saved. And over time, it just crushed him. And here's why. He couldn't witness for Jesus. He couldn't tell people about Jesus because he desperately needed other people's approval. He was afraid of offending people. He was scared of what they were going to think of him. He couldn't witness for Jesus because he needed their approval. But he needed their approval because he didn't have a certainty of God's approval. But he didn't have a certainty of God's approval because he wasn't witnessing. And so down and down and down and down he went. You see the problem? This is how outside inness works on the inside, you don't get approval. You actually get more and more nervous. You get more and more unhappy. You get more proud when you think you're doing well. You get more touchy when people criticize you because you know you're not living up to expectations. But one day, this guy joined a church of a friend of mine. And in that church, he began over time to grasp the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. He began to understand that actually... Jesus' salvation is inside out. You don't start with all of that outside behavior and try and move in for approval. You start with an absolute sense of approval. And over time that changes your behavior. Now as he started to grapple with this, as he figured it out, he he went in to see this friend of mine who led the church and he said, Look, I've got a question for you. He says, Look, I know Jesus has done so much for me. I know I'm supposed to witness for Jesus. But if I'm being honest, I'm just scared. I, I just can't do it. Do you know what my friend said? He said, that's okay. Don't do it. Jesus will still love you exactly the same as he always has and always will. This guy says, what, what do you mean Jesus will still love me? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus has died to pay the penalty for anything you do wrong. He utterly approves you, utterly loves you in spite of the things you do or don't do. So if you don't witness for Jesus, it doesn't change a single thing. He will still love you completely. A week or two later, someone came up to my friend who was leading this church and said, what have you said to that guy? I mean, he's going around everywhere telling everyone about Jesus. I mean, what did you say to him? A friend goes, oh, I just told him he didn't have to. Oh, do you see how liberating this is? If you start to live inside out, over time it's going to change everything. Your attitude to temptation, your prayer life, the way you serve in the church, how you worship, the way you share your faith, everything changes. It's not about you trying to impress others It's not you trying to meet a need in you for approval. It's not you trying to prove yourself or impress others or earn your salvation. It's not begrudging. It's not out of a sense of duty. It's not driven by guilt or condemnation or what you feel you ought to do. No, you do stuff freely with faith and with joy out of the security of knowing who you are in Christ you have absolutely nothing to prove. You are a dearly loved, accepted, forgiven, cherished child of God. It's like, you don't do good to get loved, but because you know you're loved, you do good. Now look, I know how this works. I know that pretty much as soon as you walk out of this room life will just take back over and the chances are you'll revert back to living as you did before you heard this message and nothing will change and so I just want to give you a moment or two here to maybe search your own heart a little bit I want you to be honest do you recognize traits of the Pharisee in you are you self-righteous are you more concerned with the external image you present to people? Do you find yourself comparing yourself to others? Are you driven by a desire to get approval or acceptance or self worth from others? Or, like the tax collector, have you or are you willing to throw yourself on God's mercy? Do you know the freedom that comes from knowing you're unconditionally loved? and accepted, not because of your work, but solely because of Christ's work for you. But just consider just for a moment or two where you are and where you want to be and perhaps what God might be calling you to do in response. Where does this message land for you? What are you going to do as a result? Think for a few moments. I'm going to hand over to Andy who's going to come and wrap this up.